that talk is about to begin Hey, 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 come on in Welcome back to Buckeye Talk. Stephen Means, Nathan Baird, and Andrew Gillis. This is your Friday pod slash weekend pod slash Monday pod. It's going to be all of those things. Our schedule has been really crazy, obviously, with the amount of pods we're doing. We're trying to reset a little bit here, and so this is going to be the last time you guys hear from us until Tuesday morning. So space this out a little bit. We go long anyway, so space this out. Listen to a little bit of it on Friday, a little bit of it on Saturday, a little bit of it on Sunday, and finish it off on Monday. And before you know it, We'll be in your feeds once again with another pod on Tuesday. Some things happened on Thursday afternoon. Nathan, we finally know who the 10th head assistant coach is on Ryan Day's staff. And it's James Laurinaitis, but also there were some other guys on the defensive coaching staff who got some raises and some extensions and whatnot. Let's start with the James Laurinaitis move and just like move your way down the list of how many more people here apparently did a really good job, and so Ryan Day wants to be a lot around a little bit longer. Well, maybe we should just focus on Laurinaitis, and then we'll get to the other things. I don't <clears> – <throat> excuse me. I don't know how connected those things are. Um, you know, there was a lot of speculation, and we talked about it on here. Does Ryan Day want to go outside, bring somebody in? Um, there's an, any number of ways that you could have used that other position. It could have been a special teams coordinator who had some positional responsibilities. Could have been a defensive line coach, uh, a, a, like an assistant defensive line coach, split things up with Larry Johnson. But in the end, I think they saw that James Laurinaitis was what they wanted from an assistant coach. And you always do risk, you know, uh, the longer you wait to give him his first job, the more exposed you are to someone else giving him his first job um, if if something comes up. So better to lock him up, I guess. So that's what they decided to do. He gets a two-year deal to be the linebacker's coach. This takes the linebacker coach responsibilities off of Jim Knowles, which I think is also a bonus in this. I understand you know, what they the, – the, the, the theory behind why you would add someone – along with Larry Johnson. I understand the theory behind adding a special teams coordinator. I have asked Ohio State what they're doing with special teams. They said that nobody right now is supposed to have that special teams coordinator title, so not Matt Guerrero, not James Laurinaitis. Like there's, it sounds like those duties will be split up uh, for now, potentially. Um, I don't know if Keenan Bailey will be involved in that also. But as far as bringing Laurinaitis on, this was what we expected from – at least the day that he became a GA at Ohio State, if not the day he became a GA at Notre Dame, that he would someday be the linebackers coach here. It was just a matter of when. And the timing does seem to make a lot of sense right now, especially because you're in a pos- transitional period in that linebacker room. And you know Ryan Day has said that recruiting is the number one thing that he judges the linebacker room or judges position coaches on. And that's a little bit different for coordinators. You have a, a broader set of responsibilities. But I think that they would probably honestly look at the linebacker room and say, kind of maybe head things off at the pass. If you've got somebody you think is a dynamic recruiter, get them in that room and start bringing in guys of that level into that room. If you think you can be the next Heartline Walton type of recruiting success guy then get him in place now and let him start to do that and maybe the fact that he got to go out on the road here recently 
and uh, started having some good results there and has definitely made some connections with some some guys and Andrew could probably go into that in more detail um I think those things probably played a factor here that he was he had he has demonstrated both instructionally developmentally in the year that he's been here working with linebackers and even when he wasn't allowed to go recruit in person, the connections and stuff that he's built, the guys want to come here and play for him. I think they saw those two things coming together and it's why complicate it. Just put this guy in place and let him start being uh, the kind of guy, the kind of assistant coach you think he can be. So Andrew, obviously James Ornais was working with the linebackers this past year. So there's already the implication for what it could mean for his on field stuff and developing the guys already on the roster. But it does feel like, the bigger impact here is what he could be on the recruiting trail. Obviously, he's the number one reason why Peyton Pierce is at Ohio State and not maybe at Notre Dame or maybe anywhere else out of Texas. But what kind of impact can James Laurinaitis have on the recruiting trail? Can it be similar to what we've seen with Brian Hartline and Tim Wong? Yes, it can. I'm not going to put those expectations on it. I think that that is a that is a like a really really high bar, right? I mean, you know, Brian Hartline is bringing in five star players on the reg, and Tim Walton is bringing in one of the best cornerback classes, at least as of now, as it stands in February, is one of the best cornerback classes in recent memory for not just Ohio State for anywhere. You know, like he's doing things that are just at such a high level where they're the best in the country, and. I'm not saying Ohio State shouldn't aspire to best in the country. I'm not saying James Laurinaitis shouldn't aspire to the best in the country. I'm just saying that that bar is set so ridiculously high. And that's not a negative for Ohio State. It's just that that's where you're at. Um, so, you know, it, it's certainly possible. But I think the the underlying thing here is that adding a coach like Laurinaitis and getting him on the road. I mean, he's one of your now 10 traveling assistants. You can get him on the road more frequently. He can go out and talk to these guys, talk to these guys about, you know, kind of what his process was, because when you're able to show up and say, I was a three-time All-American at this school. I played in the NFL for a while because I went to this school and now I'm back coaching at this school. That matters a lot to kids that have NFL dreams that want to be, you know, college, you know, superstars that matters a lot. So yeah, you're right. Uh, Steven Peyton Pierce, he was a Notre Dame lean when James Laurinaitis was at Notre Dame. And then all of a sudden James Laurinaitis shows up at Ohio state. Peyton Pierce is part of Ohio state's 2024 class. James Laurinaitis, huge part in getting Eli Lee, the 2025 linebacker out of uh, Archbishop Hoban out in Akron. He's a huge part of getting him there. Now you're talking about a class that has, Carvos Alford, and uh, he's making his commitment in late March. And you have Elijah Melendez and Riley Pettijohn. Ohio State's in the top six for him. You have Anthony Saka, the kid from Philly. Those are guys that you want James Laurinaitis recruiting, right? Those are guys that you want James Laurinaitis being able to talk to on the regular and tell them, hey, look, I have this contract. I'm going to be here for a while. You should want to come play linebacker under me. And, Stephen, I think we talked about this a little bit on the uh, on the recruiting pod, uh, Madden Ferrimo, the the kid out of uh, Southern California, the top one, or the top forty recruit, the four star player, really similarly ranked to Kingston Villiamuasa, and I think with where they're ranked, the part of their country they're from, you almost get a do over with him, and you almost maybe get another chance at a, at a linebacker of that quality from that part of the country, and 
I, I wrote about this for the site on um, on Friday morning. Is it too much revisionist history to say that Kingston Villiamuasa is a Buckeye if James Laurinaitis is a full-time staffer? Probably, but it wouldn't hurt. I'll put it like that. And getting any little advantage that you can get in recruiting like that, that's a huge deal. So yeah, I, I think getting Laurinaitis on the recruiting trail does matter pretty significantly. I think he can be hardline Walton level. And matter of fact, when they first hired him as a GA and we got a chance to talk to him, I asked him those exact questions. Hey, you see what Brian Hartline's doing with the wide receivers? That's a former player who can who can also point to his playing career and go, I can turn you into that. James Laurinaitis is that and then some because Brian Hartline was pretty good here and he had a pretty good NFL career. It's all quality. James Laurinaitis was a three-time All-American at Ohio State, but he's – when you think of linebackers, James Laurinaitis is on a short list of people that you think of first when you have that conversation. So I, I do think it's like that. I, it might look a little differently because Hartline is also, when he took over the job, he had the benefit of already having some of the proof in the pudding with what Ohio State did in 2020, 2018, excuse me, when he was in the interim role. While Tim Walton, Ohio State does still have that history of cornerback development cornerback recruiting so that was more just reviving something that existed four or five years ago with James Laurinaitis it's been a while quite frankly since they've gone out and just got a dude at linebacker who wasn't living 90 minutes away from your campus it's been a while since they've had the Raekwon McMillan since they've had the AJ Hawks since they've had the James Laurinaitis so that one might we might need to be a little bit more patient and not be like hey where's your five-star recruit by the time we get to December. Now, he might have one by December, but I do think long-term here, if we look back on this in two years, I think that we might be saying Ohio State's three top assistant coaches are Brian Hartline, Tim Walton, and James Laurinaitis, and now we're having a conversation of just kind of ranking them within each other because I'm, I'm to your point, Nathan, I'm excluding the coordinators with how Ryan Day has built this staff because they're almost not even asked to recruit. They're asked to just scheme. So I'm taking – Chip Kelly, J, uh, Jim Knowles, whoever ends up being defensive coordinator, offensive coordinator down the line out of this conversation. So if you're just talking about the other eight assistants, I think we might be looking back on James as another home run hire for Ryan Day, which would be interesting. I know the former player thing isn't everything, but it would be interesting if the three best assistant coaches on your staff are all guys who played for your team in very different eras of, of college football. You know, my inclination, because I was thinking about that earlier when it got brought up, my inclination is that is a little bit, a little bit coincidental that it just, that this has come together that way for Ohio State, especially because, you know, Brian Hartland wasn't exactly like the plan A to be an assistant coach uh, when he was. And so it's, it's just sort of naturally happened that way, but maybe it isn't completely coincidental that, you know, the, the, when you're going in and trying to get guys to buy into your program, it's it it's more genuine when you can tell them that you bought into that program and you're better for it. So I think that probably does resonate. It, it's I've pushed back a little bit on how important it is to have Ohio State guys on the staff in order to like beat Notre Dame or whatever, because not not trying to you know throw them under a bus, but like Tim Walton never beat. Michigan when he was here as a player. So having him on staff doesn't necessarily on itself tell you that you're going to beat Michigan when when he's here as a coach. Now, Brian Hartline obviously did beat them. Jim Zornitis went 4-0. So 
I, I'm not saying that they, they can't bring a certain element that, that helps you inspirationally or motivationally or whatever. But I do think it is important in general to have a mix of Ohio State guys on the staff because you just need that connection. I don't think you have to have 10 Ohio State guys. In fact, I think it's it would probably be bad to have 10 Ohio State guys. I think you probably want a mix. But I think they've, they're getting not just Ohio State guys, but pretty obviously from the results, the right Ohio State guys, guys who are uh, who not only have this connection, but can do the job. And there's early indications that James Laurinaitis will be that too. And I also think it's not coincidental that the best recruiters have also been having the best developmental success as well. That I think if you can get a guy to buy in to coming across the country to play for you, you can get him to buy in to doing the things that he has to do on a day-to-day basis, the extra things he has to do, the things he has to do on his own to be an elite-level player. And you're seeing that in the cornerback room. You're seeing that at receiver, obviously. And now we'll see if that happens at linebacker. And I think that's the more crucial. A lot of people are jumping right to the recruiting angle of this for Laurinaitis, and I understand. And I've, I've done that, too, in some of the things I've written. But the developmental part is going to be big, especially when you look at this 2024 linebacker situation. You have Cody Simon coming back, presumptive starter at Mike. But then now, who's playing Will? Is Sonny Styles a linebacker? And if so, how does James Laurinaitis impact developing him into the linebacker he needs to be in short order? Is C.J. Hicks your Will linebacker? And can James Laurinaitis unleash something that hasn't previously broken through these past two years? Is it someone, I don't even know who else it would be if it isn't one of those two guys. Frankly, I guess Gabe Powers would be in the mix, although I've never really thought of him as, as like a future Will linebacker. But there's you've, you've got, it's one of the few positions on this defense where you have to go find two new starters, uh, or, or at least one if you're penciling in Cody Simon. Everybody else is, we know who's starting. It's, it's the same guys who started last year. So James Laurinaitis is coming in at a point where there's a little bit, I wouldn't call it a hole in this defense, but it's it's right now is the more more uncertain starting spots in this defense. And if what we've seen from him, you know, developmentally looks good, if he can have that impact in this first year, it helps solidify maybe the one place where this defense is a little bit vulnerable. The former Buckeye thing probably stands out more when your coach doesn't necessarily have the ties to the program the same way the That's last couple of coaches have had. And they're not the only people that we're talking about. We're talking about the 10 assistants, but C.J. Barnett, who's in charge of basically the players, <laughs> we're talking about off the field stuff. He's a former Buckeye. There's some other people in the program who are former Buckeyes. Well, Devin Jordan, who's like the assistant with the wide receivers now, he's a former Buckeye here. So they're sprinkled everywhere. They're not just, oh, they don't have to just be the 10 assistants. You can just have them as being foundational pieces throughout your program I, I think what's going to be interesting here is and maybe I'm just thinking too deep into this Nathan but we have not seen any linebacker rotation at linebacker and it's fine I'm not saying this complaining but I do wonder if some of that is because their position coach has been upstairs worried about you know calling the plays and so it's like I trust my guys but I am assuming that James Laurinaitis is still going to be on the field just like he is during the games and now that your linebackers coach is on the field, I wonder if we do see more packages. It, we still, you, you're right. You're still going to find starters. You're still going to find your top two. But is there room for this to be a three or four person uh, thing where four people are getting meaningful snaps depending on the situation? Just because James Lord, you're, the guy who's actually in charge of the subs now is down there on the field getting a feel for the game in the way that Jim Knowles 
probably that wasn't at the first side of his mind is, oh, let me kind of rotate things here. I think that's an interesting way to look at it. Um, it Maybe. And that maybe that this season was going to naturally lend itself to more rotations anyway. Because I know that we look at things on paper and we see we see where Steel Chambers came from as a prospect as an athlete and we see where cj hicks started as a prospect and an athlete and we say well well why is one still above the other so consistently and we assume some things based on that and i don't think that's necessarily safe to make any assumptions there that steel chambers may have just been the the better linebacker these past certainly this past season would have been the first time where it really seemed like a a a clash so but this would seem to be a setup ahead with eichenberg gone with chambers gone with even some of the other depth, you know, Reed Carrico leaving the program, like you're starting to to weed things out a little bit and and bring it back around just a couple, three guys, and maybe some sort of a rotation does make more sense. And I'm I'm very eager, like all eyes were on Sonny Styles. Well, not all eyes. A lot of eyes were on the quarterbacks last year for the start of spring practice with, with good reason. But a lot of eyes were on Sonny Styles because we were all like, where's it going to be? Where's it going to be? And now here we are a year later, and it's the same. Where's it going to be? Where's it going to be? And the best answer for Ohio State might be that he's all over the place. And I, if you can do that without like hindering him developmentally, I think that might be the best thing. But if, he's, if you need a true slot corner, at, at that nickel place, and that's where Jordan Hancock is playing, you can still get Sonny Styles on the field as a linebacker. If you want Sonny Styles as more the Sam nickel, that as as Jim Knowles called it last year, you can put someone else at will linebacker. I think this might just be a more multiple defense in general because of Sonny Styles, and I think that Laurinaitis there, though, is, is a key developmental part of that because Sonny Styles does need to change a little bit physically he's on his way there but if you're going to play him a lot at linebacker he's got to keep changing physically and but if you're going to do this that means you're still also developing another linebacker to be starting caliber and if that's cj hicks that's fine if it's somebody else then regardless i think he's got some work to do between now and august so that'll be an interesting conversation of course the first time we get to talk to james Laurinaitis, who is now as i mentioned the linebackers coach official he can go out on the road. Well, he was already out on the road as one of the 10 assistants because they didn't have 10. But now he gets to stay out on the road long term. Nathan, just for the sake of uh, some other people, got some extensions, got some contract situations going on. What else is going on just news-wise before we get into what today's topic is? Pod? Yeah, so Tim Walton was promoted, and he was already the defensive passing game coordinator in addition to being the secondary slash cornerbacks coach. Now he's the assistant head coach. And we'll see what that means in terms of whether that's just a, a title bump or, or how, how Ryan Day changes. You know, last year, we didn't know it at the time, but in retrospect, that promotion he got, that title bump that he got, seemed now to be a little bit tied to some dissatisfaction that they had at, at safety uh, with, the, with the safeties coach, Barry Eliano at the time, or or needing to take some things off his plate or something. Maybe it's having the impact he did in recruiting. But with Matt Guerrieri coming in, if they're going to give him more special team stuff, then maybe this just is a way to to emphasize the oversight that, that Tim Walton's going to have with the rest of that defense. Uh, but that's obviously, it's it's warranted. I mean, he's been 
Um, he's done tremendous work really ever since he got here. I know the, the cornerback play was uh, iffy in 2022 because of injuries and stuff, but you could also look at it as, man, how did they keep that together with the quarter, with the cornerback play as, as bad as it was and guys banged up as much as they were. So, and ever since then, obviously, you know, both performance and recruiting has been uh, top shelf. Um, Larry Johnson gets a new two-year contract. His contract expired in January. He gets a new two-year deal, and I think it's important that it's a two-year deal because that's something, and in a way, that can be your answer. If you're not going to hire an assistant defensive line coach, then when people in this next recruiting cycle are asking you, are you still going to be there? You can be like, hey, I've got a contract through 2026, and they can always extend me beyond that. So uh, maybe that helps a little bit in that realm. And uh, Keenan Bailey, who got a two-year deal last year for his first year as tight ends coach got a one-year extension so now he is also signed through 2025 so that locks everybody up um brian hartline when he was promoted off to coordinator he got a deal through 2025 oh jim Knowles also got a contract extension for one more year through 2025 he originally had a three-year deal would have been a going into a lame duck season so he gets one more year on top of that and everybody i guess is now signed through 2025 except Tony Alford and Justin Fry. So they are now going into sort of their lame duck years. And I guess I don't read it's it's not necessarily I guess a vote of confidence that they didn't that they didn't get one obviously. But I I'm not reading too much into that. That may also be a situation where you you're also bringing in a new offensive coordinator. And while the these decisions at the end of the day, it has been made clear to me are Ryan days. You, he's probably going to take Chip Kelly's input in this. We don't know how long Chip Kelly is going to be here. Obviously he may not be putting up, um, putting down roots in, in Columbus for the next five to 10 years. But if he's going to be here for a few years and there are going to be any staff changes to be made there, he would probably listen to any input that Chip has. So I think there's an evaluation there in the, in the case of Justin Fry, there's, there's a performance evaluation that, has to be made like you're going into your third year. So uh, while you inherited a bad situation, how much better have you made it by the end of this coming season? I think that's a fair thing to ask both from performance and recruiting for Tony Offord. It goes back to a conversation that we were having a couple weeks ago on this pod, which is uh, Tony Offord's been here since 2015. He's the second longest tenured guy besides Larry Johnson. And I think Tony Offord, you would have to say has done a, a very good job as an assistant coach here. I think, you know, consistently they've had good running backs on a couple occasions they've had great running backs there have been a couple of recruiting stumbles along the way but sometimes you swing big and miss at a position where you're only getting maybe one guy in a class and bad things happen so I think they've corrected those usually in the next cycle and and now it's maybe just a matter of like where is he at this stage of his life and career and do you does does he want to move on to something else? Does Ohio State need just sort of a new voice in the mix? Uh, it gives them some options going into next year rather than you know tying themselves in with anything long-term. And as we saw with Larry Johnson this year, your contract can expire in January and they just give you a new one moving forward from that if they want to keep you. Now, I do wonder if that's what's going to happen with Tony Offord here. But his is – I do look at them differently. I do look at Andrew Justin Fries as more of a, all right, buddy. You got a year. Show me what you got. While with Tony Offord, it's just, man, this is business, man. And it may be both of the 
maybe Tony Alford might be made to move on. And I'm not saying this because I know anything. I'm just saying he's been here since 2015. And after a while in sports, sometimes you just want to change the scenery. And this is a guy who at times has felt like has it's maybe more Colorado State when they come up with opening jobs, but has been at least interested in the idea of being a head coach elsewhere. So I don't – that one didn't stick out to me. The Justin Fry one, Andrew, is the one that stuck out to me in the fact that he didn't get an extension. Yeah, well, I mean, didn't we talk about this when we when we talked about assistant coaches where we were saying sometimes change isn't a bad thing when it comes to your coaching staff because sometimes coaches can just have a frank conversation, you know, assistant coaches with the head coach, wherever it is, at Ohio State, at Toledo, wherever. You can just say, look, I, I feel like I've kind of gone stale here. I've gone stagnant here, and I think it's time to move on. And you, you, I'm not saying that that's what's happening. I know that's not what you're saying either. It's just sometimes that you are in that position. So you don't know. Um, the Fry thing, yeah, the Fry thing is interesting because I think the you need to see some improvement from the on-field aspect because we have mentioned now for a while of, hey, look, you know, offensive line is a really, really developmental position, right? Like it is a really, really unique position to kind of take hold of and develop. And when Justin Fry was was here in 2022, he inherited some really good offensive line, uh, offensive line men, I should say. Uh, and then in 2023, obviously, we know the struggles of that unit. Now you're in year three. This is where you want to start to see the recruiting bump. This is where you want to start to see an on-field talent bump where, hey, you know what? He's not getting the top 100 top 80 top 150 kids but that's totally fine because he's finding the 312th ranked kid in the country and he's developing them into a starter like you like those are the kind of development stories that you need if you're not going to recruit at that level so there's a there's a lot of different ways you can do this and i i think you're right the the fry thing stuck out to me too because this kind of feels like one of those years where you need to start to see some development not saying you need to you know, win the Joe Moore award, not saying you need to go out and do something crazy like that. But I do think that there is a, um, there is a step forward that, that needs to be taken from an, uh, from a recruiting standpoint, from a, you know, from an on field standpoint, really from a couple of different levels, it doesn't have to be the greatest leap in the world. It, it just, there needs to be a leap. So that's the news. That's the latest news. And probably the last news for a while knocks on wood. Until obviously spring practice is less than a couple of weeks away, man. We're almost time's moving fast here. It's been an exciting, interesting offseason. And now Ohio State has its full 10 man staff. James Oronitis, the 10th member of that staff, now moving up from graduate assistant to linebacker. They've got a new offensive coordinator. They re up some contracts. And now it's time to go put it all together and start spring practice in March. 15 practices then. The spring game will be in April. And as Ohio State continues to trudge for, towards the 2024 regular season and we're going to take a quick break here and then when we come back we're going to get into the what the meat of this pot is going to be it's a threat spot and it's we're looking at this roster we're looking at the landscape of college football and we're figuring out this is a team that potentially is one of three or four teams this year where it's like they legitimately have a chance to win a national championship how we're viewing things right now in february and we're going to look at some of the things that could get in the way of them potentially achieving that accomplishment we'll get more into that when we come back here on buckeye talk what are the biggest threats to Ohio State's chances of 
winning a national championship in 2024. You're talking about a team with some new assistant coaches. We're talking about a team with with a new quarterback. It's not going to be potentially. There's going to be a new starting quarterback. A lot of the same guys on defense, potentially a different looking offensive line. And you lost your best player from last year, Marvin Harrison Jr., who's probably going to be a top five draft pick in April. We're ranking. We're not really ranking them. We're just kind of drafting them, and we're just going in order. I mean, it's kind of a rank, but it's not really a rank. It's just more, you know, how we structure things so we can actually have a you know, discourse about this conversation. Andrew, we're gonna let you go first this time. We never let you go first. Nathan and I usually go first. We're gonna let you go first. What do you think the biggest threat is to Ohio State's <clears throat> chances of winning a national championship in twenty twenty four? Yeah, um, the biggest threat I think is the new twelve team playoff format. I think we have talked for a while about the four-team playoff format being unfair, being whatever, however you want to describe it. That's not what we're here to debate, obviously. The first and foremost, four- first and foremost, nobody has called it unfair but you. So don't say we when <laughs> no, you the say four- the four-team playoff unf- is unfair. The twelve, yeah, no, oh, yes, okay. yes, that's what I said. Okay. Yeah, the four-team playoff is unfair, and de- a lot of people have said the four-team playoff is unfair because while it is harder to get in it is easier to win it's objectively easier to win a four-team playoff and the 12-team playoff I mean I mentioned this when we did the Penn State pod we were going into that game and I said is there a team more impacted by the 12-team playoff positively than Penn State I don't know if there is and you guys both pushed back that it was the Buckeyes because they would have made the 12-team playoff format in every single iteration Um, So I think that there is a debate there, but it is easier to get in. And look, you would have gotten in last year. You would have gotten in in 2021. It's a heck of a lot harder to win. And I mapped this out because I was curious. So in last year's format, Ohio State, if, if the 12 team playoff format happened in 2023, Ohio State would have had to have beaten Penn State at home. Then you have to go to a neutral site, which would probably be on the West Coast or somewhere out there, and beat Washington. And then you have to beat Texas or Georgia. And then you have to beat Michigan or Alabama for the playoff or for the national title. Penn State, Washington, Texas or Georgia, and then Michigan or Bama. Those four games. And then even if you give them Michigan's path. So, like, let's say in 2024, Ohio State is this super team that a lot of people think that they can be. And they're the number one seed. Because they go 13-0, and and they run the table, and they look like world destroyers, and they just, they look awesome. I know these, team, these teams are just fillers, but just to get an idea of the talent, uh, they would have to beat the number eight seed in the quarterfinals, a team like Oregon, who was in uh, 2023. They would have to beat Alabama in the semifinals, and then you have to go through and beat, I don't know, a Texas, a Georgia. Uh, and an Alabama, like whoever, like one of those teams you have to beat. And if the point of the four team playoff was, you know, or I, you know, I should say this if the four team playoff could give you situations like TCU, where, you know, maybe you get a little bit of a breather and, and you don't really have to play one of those war machine type teams like a Georgia, like an Ohio State, like a Michigan, those teams are going to have a harder time in a 12 team playoff world. And the longer you go, you're going to play better teams. And Ohio State can be a really, really good team. But in those matchup games, 
in those type of you know Notre Dame games that we saw from last year where one thing goes wrong and you lose in those in that Michigan game where a couple things goes wrong and you do lose like in those type of games the 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 little things hurt you it's you're not playing Wisconsin anymore you're not playing Minnesota anymore and i just think the 12 team playoff it just makes things more difficult for everyone even Ohio State even Georgia even Alabama even the elite level college football teams they have a harder road to win a national championship. And for everything that I looked at on this list, I just came back to the fact that, like, man, they might have to play, like, Georgia and Penn State and Texas or something like that en route to a national championship. And I couldn't think of anything harder than that. So, Nathan, I had something similar to this on my list as well. Uh, just I called it Can You Stand the Rain? It's just – who can sustain December, November, December, January now? Because you are adding an extra game into the mix here where it's not quite the NCAA tournament March Madness situation, but there is some elements of that of who can get hot and then stay hot for basically a month and a half of this time. And that's a new element to college football that we haven't necessarily seen in a turn in terms of a tournament style. Obviously the, the entire regular season can sometimes feel like that. But when you're talking when you're putting trophies behind it, when you're making it a playoff setting, it is a, a new element that everybody's gonna have to deal with. Yeah, you know, this had not really been on my radar and I'm I'm not sure I'd put it in my top three even after your arguments for a couple of reasons. And for I think that there might be a I guess I would hear it if if we're talking about 2024 specifically because now with the way that this is developed for Ohio State we expect them to be one of those top 4 teams. So now if if it, we expect them to maybe even end the season as one of those top 4 teams, the way their schedule looks compared to some other people, what they have talent-wise compared to some other people if everything goes right. So that for that team that would have normally had to just win two games now has to win three. Yes, it'll be harder. In general, in throughout history, I mean, not only would Ohio State have made all twelve of the or all ten of the first um, fourteen fields, um, or a twelve-team field in those all ten of those years, it would have never, I think, been seated lower than like seventh. Like it would have had a home game in all of those years. So it, they're not even on the outside, like barely getting in. They would have been a a and it would have been an advantageous situation in that first round every time, and. I guess I still think of, I don't think of this as like the NCAA basketball tournament. I'm going to have to be proven wrong on that. I think it's going to be different than that. I think it's going to be different than the NFL playoffs because the NCAA basketball tournament is, it's just, this is where the sports sort of start to differ. And you can have like one great player who just carries you or gets hot. I saw this happen in an NCAA tournament one time. Um, a couple guys just shooting the lights out for a couple of weeks. And all of a sudden you're a, a whisper away from the final four. And that's a different dynamic. The NFL, the way roster management and the salary cap and everything, it is a much more talent equated league. And I'm expecting in college football for the most part, those upsets are going to be less likely. And I think the very best teams are going to carry through more often, especially when you're talking about the, all these games will be happening. Cause we've seen times God knows Ohio State fans know. 2017, 2018, you go on the road against subpar teams that just happen to have the right mix on that day, Iowa-Purdue, and clearly Ohio State was the better roster in both of those occasions. But those teams won fairly easily because of the circumstances that day. But now when you talk about having to come to Ohio Stadium or 
playing on neutral sites for those upsets to happen, I think it's it's also less likely. I would actually posit, and I didn't even have this in my top three, but maybe I should, that the new Big Ten format is a bigger hindrance to Ohio State being a national champion than the 12-team playoff. Because in the past, you could have a, you would go 12-0 and and you'd beat Michigan. Like what, let's just look at last year. Ohio State finds a way. Ohio State, instead of Kamakor getting uh, intercepted on that last play and knocked down, he gets that pass off. Marvin Harrison catches it. They score a touchdown and win 31 to 30. And they're 12 and 0. And now you get to go squash um, Iowa or whoever in, in the Big Ten championship game. That's been because that's what Michigan got to do. Like, that's been the formula. You find a way to grind your way to win the East and you get to go beat the um, redheaded stepchild of the West and move on to the playoff. Now you'd be looking at a rematch. Now you might be looking at playing the 11 and one team that is also a top 10 team who you didn't even have to play in a regular season. Um, it's going to be, you're going to have a better team when you're, when you're the clear best team in the big 10, which has so traditionally come out of the East for several years. Now you're going to have a better opponent to face in the big 10 championship game. And now that's not going to knock you out of the playoff, but in the past, when you could go 12-0 and and just squash Purdue in the Big Ten Championship game or Iowa or Wisconsin, I know Wisconsin gave Ohio State a good half in 2019, whatever. When you can do that, you're getting an easy climb into that top four. Now you're having a tougher game to get that first round by, or you're losing and now you're playing at home because you're not the conference champion. I think that is the one that actually makes it harder than the 12-team format. Sorry, it would unmute for me. The Big Ten Championship game is essentially a. It, sorry, it, it like was stuck on mute. It was being weird. The Big Ten Championship is essentially a, a a game for that bye bye week. Essentially, I think at this point, with yeah. how loaded the Big Ten is, the fact that you, to your point, it's the top. It's literally going to be the two top teams in the Big Ten playing in the Big Ten Championship game. The winner of that game is probably getting a bye, which does add a little bit more pressure into that game. Nathan, I'll, we'll let you go next then because just to move into this a little bit, what was the top thing on your list then? My number one thing is quarterback. We look at last year's team and we see how many of the elements of a championship were in place. Tremendous defense. You've got maybe the pound for pound best player in the country in Marvin Harrison. You've got other elements of that offense that especially down the stretch were coming together. Matt Kabuka coming back healthy, Trevin Henderson coming back healthy and doing what he did. And while I defended the idea that Kyle McCord was not this, uh, you know, uh, corpse that they were uh, dragging around and that he had a, when you compare him against the rest of college football, had a very productive year. It also became apparent that maybe that's just this offense and what Ryan Day has designed this offense to do. And I, I don't know this. You could even argue that this is a fault. But what, what this offense is designed to do and, and the way that it's schemed, you may just need truly elite quarterback play for this to work. 
And now my one hesitation of putting this number one was because I think this is going to be just such a, they can, they can lean a little bit more to the run than they have in the last couple of years. And how that balance shifts is going to be interesting to watch play out. And was something we need to track compared to, you know, how, how it's played out in past years. But I do think that it's imperative that either Will Howard comes in and shows what he wants to show that he is a more talented quarterback, more talented passer, more talented reader of defenses, all those things than he has been able to show at Kansas state or somebody else beats him out and is just the dude, whether that's Devin Brown, like standing up and saying, no, this is my job. Like I've been here for three years. I'm taking this job and he goes out and does it. Or it's Aaron Olin or uh, Julian saying showing up on day one and just throwing missiles or whatever, and then being like, oh, wait a second. We can't not have that on the field. Like, that's just the thing. Um, some combination of that, I think, probably needs to happen. I think if you go in and have really mediocre quarterback play, or just like even solidly good quarterback play, because this is the debate that we had before last season, was if if Comacord isn't C.J. Stroud, if he's just a very solid quarterback, is the rest of is the talent there the rest of the other 21 positions that this can still be a championship team and we landed on yes and it really wasn't that far off again ball in his hands down 6 on the road against the eventual national champion you're in their territory when the final play happens like they're right there they're right there. They were still one of the four. I didn't come out of that game thinking, well, that proved Ohio State wasn't one of the four best teams. I mean, they were one of the four best teams. And if the Big Ten format had been different, they may have been in the playoff. They would have had their chance to beat Michigan the next week. But uh, it is what it is. So I still think, though, that if you go into August, if you go into September, and you're like, well, we think Will Howard's going to be all right. Like, if if they're, if we're getting a vibe, the kind of the one that we got last year, which was... Nobody has like definitively put a stamp on them being the best quarterback on this roster. It, like in retrospect, should we have been more suspicious of that than we were at the time? Maybe. Um, I am more suspicious of it this year. I think somebody between now and September needs to step up and be the guy who everyone believes is not just can lead this team towards a championship theoretically, but like is actively doing it. Yeah, I, I so I didn't have quarterback as a whole. I, I just had Will Howard. Um, Will Howard was fairly high on my list. He was third, um, you know, when I kind of ranked these things. I For me, the reason he was so high is because I'm not sure what the quarterback room is going to look like behind him on May 20th or whatever, you know, and on May, I guess maybe even like May 5th. Um, I, I don't know what you're going to be working with going into the season because I don't think it's unreasonable to assume that one of the quarterbacks is not here. And who is that quarterback? That's not here. Is it multiple quarterbacks that aren't here? Is it one? Like, I mean, does everybody stay? Like I have questions about that because then it definitely ups the, the need for Howard to be good. Because if like, if you lose a Devin Brown and your backup is, is Lincoln Keenholt, then you need Lincoln Keenholz to be ready to go because he's one snap away from being the starting quarterback at Ohio State. And I understand that, um, you know, you're not really worried about the backup situation, but you need Howard to play well. And you need Howard to be, if not better, than what 
Kyle McCord was last year. You need him to be more versatile, and I think you can get that out of him. Um, but you need the you need him to put everything together so it in to- so that in totality he's even just a smidge better than Kyle McCord because we saw kind of what this team is with. Some people will say horrible quarterback play. I disagree. It wasn't horrible. I think, it, yeah, as I, yeah, Nathan it wasn't kind of good enough, but point. it wasn't horrible. Yeah, I, I think mediocre maybe is the be- is the better way to put it. Or, yeah, uh, uh, yeah, it's, it's like, not even what, but it's not even what the rest of college football would consider average. I think the bigger question is whether the question was whether average was going to get Ohio State where it needed to go, or even just merely better than average, like good. Like it was good quarterback against the rest of college football. What common core did is considered a good performance. So, but it, that wasn't good enough for Ohio state. I think that was maybe what was proven last year that this offense, you can't just be pretty good. Will Howard just can't be pretty good this year. It doesn't have to be, it needs to be flirting with Heisman. I don't, I'm not going to go there all the way because as we're finding out, TJ's child was like exceptional by exceptional means, <laughs> but I think it needs to be in the conversation. I think it needs to be in the conversation to be the big 10 quarterback of the year in the conversation to be big 10 offensive player. Of the year. It, We should be talking about him that way. The floor and the ceiling of the quarterback play have to be better because the problem with Kyle McCord last year wasn't that he was bad or even average. It's that, the worst parts of him weren't offset by whatever the best parts of him were. And that showed itself on numerous occasions. And it just didn't come to actually hurt them on the scoreboard until the last game of the season, last irrelevant game of the season against Michigan. That can't be the case. If you're going to have this thing that's like an inerrant flaw, which everybody in life and every walk of life has, every, we all have flaws. None of us are walking around here perfect. But in sports, Whatever your flaw is, whatever you're awesome at has to eat, cancel that out. That was the deal with C.J. Stroud. That was the deal with Justin Fields. That was the deal with Dwayne Haskins. You want to take it outside of Ohio State? That was the deal with J.J. McCarthy. That was the deal with Stetson Bennett. That was the deal with Joe Burrow. On down the list here, all different levels of talent with quarterback. But whatever they couldn't do, whatever they were great at, offset it and that's the thing that eventually elevated this offense and that's what the quarterback play has to be here i don't care about the backup situation i get it we have to acknowledge the fact that you're always one play away and all that stuff it's out there i get that but i don't i personally don't like living in that world of like you might need this guy because you also just might not right we've seen plenty of national champions win a national championship and never need their backup quarterback to do anything whatsoever and it's, i understand we're at ohio state where that is not the case but that's typically the case there's not a, it's not normal to have to need to rely on your backup quarterback so whether it's will howard whether it's devin brown who comes in here in the spring is like i'm in year three i'm taking my job or it's air nolan lincoln Keenholz, julian sand whatever whoever it is they need to elevate the offense when it's time for the quarterback to elevate the offense and every game isn't going to call for that but there might be a moment in the Penn State game that calls for that. There might be a moment. There's definitely going to be a moment in the Oregon game that calls for it. And when you get into the playoff, there's definitely going to be games where, yes, all the talent around you is great, but you also need to elevate that a little bit. And if that doesn't happen, I can guarantee you there are some other teams who have quarterbacks who are going to be willing and capable of elevating their team. I didn't. I had it in my top three. I have like a list of like eight or nine different things, and I ranked them. 
quarterback play was at the top of my list in a conversation like this because it's just it's one of the things that held him back last year. And the other thing that held him back just to get into mind was offensive line play and showing up in moments where you got to have it. That's another thing where I don't think the offensive line play was so bad. It was, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't losing them games until it was losing them games. Right. It was a problem all year, but really this boils down to Donovan Jackson slipped over his own feet or maybe over another player. I can't remember off the top of my head, but he, he tripped the pocket got messy. Kyle McCord couldn't step into a throw that would have probably been completed to Marvin Harrison Jr. And the season's over because of that. The, the Cotton Bowl was a mess, but it was a mess for a million different reasons. Offensive line being on that list. But if we have the same scenario we had last year, except the quarterback, everything else is awesome, but the offensive line is not better, then they're going to play a good team and they're going to lose, Nathan. Yeah, offensive line was number two on my list. And I agree. I think it's one of those things where when you get into uh, what we saw last year in Ann Arbor was a team that all season long had where the, where the margins weren't costing them. Almost did at Notre Dame, but they found a way to overcome that. Tough win on the road. Um, but they weren't, they didn't have to be perfect in the margins. They could still find a way to win those games. And then at Michigan, when Michigan played a damn near perfect game, or certainly a, a game without major flaws, then having even one, certainly two, is potentially going to cost you, and it did that day. And I don't think you can get into the most important games of next year still kind of like, is our offensive line good enough? Like, is this offensive line going to block this pass rush? Is this offensive line going to get gummed up? And I think this wouldn't be as high on my list as it is if the Cotton Bowl hadn't gone the way it did. But regardless of whatever lineup change they decided to make that night, it was kind of a one through five catastrophe. It just was not a good performance from the offensive line by any means. It certainly wasn't a confidence building performance by the offensive line going into this offseason. So, there is this is still a unit that has something to prove. And again, it's interesting that we're saying this. We're, it's, it's good that we're doing this now in mid-February. We should probably do it again in mid-August um, because as we get as we approach the season, because we may have a different perspective on some of these questions. Maybe we'll have seen Will Howard through practices and the spring game show us that he is uh, even a step above what he showed at Kansas State. Maybe we'll see some things emerge on this offensive line. And we, more to the point, we won't see what we saw last spring, which was a def- defensive line that just had its way with the offensive line throughout an entire spring. If we see that again, I think this is a problem for Ohio State. They've got to find a way to better identify the five best offensive linemen. They've got to find a way to take some of these guys who are very promising young guys and push them across the line and get them to where they are at the front of this and and taking some of these starting spots. I don't think they can go into next year with four of the same starters plus Seth McLaughlin. I think there's probably got to be a shuffle in there or 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 at least the, if a guy keeps his job, he needs to have to like fight into August next year to keep it because it's going to be a healthy sign if there's real talent coming up behind and pushing these more veteran guys to keep those jobs. Uh, it's it's still the thing that I look at. I, I almost put it, <clears throat> excuse me, I almost put it number one above 
quarterbacks because you could argue, I mean, it comes down to that last play at Michigan last year. Was that a quarterback mistake? Was that an offensive line mistake? Was it just one of those things that happens in a close game against a great team? I don't know. But offensive line, from when you're coming out of the Cotton Bowl, yes, the quarterback play wasn't great, but you also never gave your quarterback a chance. And I don't expect the, the, the offensive line play to be as bad as it was in the Cotton Bowl regularly throughout this next year. I think some of that was unique to that night's circumstances. But I would say that this offensive line needs to start to be a source of confidence again for this offense, not a source of uh, where we talk about how this offense is succeeding in spite of the offensive line. That Michigan game, at least for the offensive standpoint, just highlighted all the problems that were wrong with the season, right? Obviously, the Kyle McCourt interception early on, that leads to the easy, probably the easiest touchdown that Ohio State's defense had given up all year. And you take that interception away, you take those seven points away, that's, you know, they lost by six. So you can say that. Or you can say, as I mentioned earlier, the Donovan Jackson falling and the pocket blowing up. So Kyle McCourt throws a second interception. But in both of those situations, you saw – why the quarterback play wasn't good enough, but you also saw why the offensive line play wasn't good enough, and it finally cost them a game. Andrew, quarter, uh, offensive line play. You like offensive line. You talk a lot of offensive line. Is this on your list? I would assume so. Yeah, uh, shout out offensive line. Uh, I had them second uh, on my list. I, I did have them above quarterback. I, I had them above every other thing other than the 12-team playoff format, and the reason why I did is because let's say Will Howard's good. Let's say Will Howard's really good. And let's say the running back tandem is what we think it is. If you can't block anybody, you're screwed anyway. Right? <laughs> like, like if you can't, like if you can't hold up against Oregon, against Penn State, against Michigan, against whoever you're gonna play in the 12 team playoff, that's a problem. And that's gonna kill you more than anything else because you could have everything go your way. You could be healthy. You Chip Kelly could be awesome. You could have a great quarterback in Will Howard. The running back tandem of Henderson and Judkins could be everything you want it to be. The receivers could be great. Jeremiah Smith could be the next coming of Julio Jones. And Emeka Buka looks like a top 15 pick. And Carnell Tate looks like a future first-round pick. And everything's great. And the defense is great. And if you're giving up all of these negative plays and sacks and you can't really run the ball very well you know against teams not named Michigan State what are you doing like what are we doing here if that's the problem and I understand you know the the thought process of the quarterback is the most important part of of any team and I mean I agree but for this team specifically the offensive line has got to get better because I met the reason why I had this second and not first was because I think the 12 team playoff format, like you're going to have to run through some really tough teams. And I think that that matters kind of maybe more than this. But when you're talking about the offensive line in those matchups, how are you going to hold up against a team that has maybe an Ohio State quality defensive line, right? Like what happens if you got to play Georgia in the semifinals? What happens if you got to play a team like, I don't know, uh, Texas or somebody in the in the quarters or whatever. And you're playing a team that's got four or five star players loaded on that defensive front. Can you handle that? Because we just watched a game in the Rose Bowl where Alabama had really, really significant trouble handling a Michigan defensive front. 
And you could argue it cost him the game. You could argue that the offensive line issues in that in that Rose Bowl cost Alabama the game and maybe a national championship. So I just I look at that and I say like, man, the offensive line has got to be better this year or else it might ruin everything else that's good about this team. So, yeah, the, the offensive line for me is, is number two. The thing is, I'm not worried about them giving up sacks. They weren't great this year. Kyle McCord got sacked 16 times last year. So I'm, I'm not – like, you can scheme to get the ball out of your quarterback's hand quicker than that. So the, the, the actual sack number is not what I'm necessarily worried about. I'm worried about the, pre- the overall pressures and worried about what can't Ohio State's offense run because they can't block. And that's where it's like the long developing play action deep shots that have become a staple of the Ryan Day era. And I'm sure we'll still see this year. Can they not run those as often this year because they can't block whatever Chip Kelly comes up with in terms of a run scheme, him and Justin Fry and Ryan Day all together and Tony Offord come up with all together as a run scheme. Does it not work because they can't get the blocking? And so Quinchon Judkins and Travion Henderson can't get to the second level. Nobody has just the only team that I've seen just dominate Ohio State in terms of sacks was Michigan in 2021, and that's because they had the number two pick in the NFL draft on their roster. No other team. Kyle McCord got sacked four times against Wisconsin, but even going back and watching those games, some of that was on Kyle more than it was on the offensive line. I don't. I have not seen a pass rush just dominate Ohio State's offensive line since that game. They played some pretty good ones this past year. Penn State was pretty good. It's more just what section of the playbook is now off limits because you can't try them because you can't hold up in protection. And so it's not worth trying to get this explosive play because if it doesn't work, then it might end up in a seven-yard loss in those situations. But I'm not necessarily worried about whether it's Howard or Devin Brown or anybody else having 30-plus sacks this year. We haven't seen a quarterback be like that since Justin Fields, and that's because he was trying to make plays down the field. But also for every two or three sacks, there's also two or three 15 to 20-yard runs he's capable of giving up for you. But So those are our top three. And Nathan, go ahead. No, I, I I think you guys covered it. It's it's just it's when you look at this team on paper. I mean, there's no weak spot on defense right now. That's not me saying it's the greatest defense of all time. I'm just saying there's no real weak spot there. Maybe linebacker, but not really. And then you start looking. You know the you know the running backs are good. You know the receivers are good. And you think that at worst, like worst case scenario, you've got like a gamer who has won championship games and rivalry games and has some talent at quarterback. So, like, all eyes are going to be on this offensive line, and they were last year. And I think, you know, I'm, I'm interested to hear from these guys when we get into spring practice for the first time because, you know, last year I felt like they thought they were under a microscope a little bit for good reason, and they're still going to be this year. And that's going to be maybe a chip on their shoulder, or do they kind of crack under that pressure? We'll see. So those are our top three. I think those are – pretty you know i think most people would have thought those would have been the top three let's keep moving here to andrew what's the next thing on your list yeah th- this is kind of where I, I think my my top three i made really easily and then you know kind of settled um but when you talk about winning a national championship i mean maybe i have this too high and and i, I mean maybe you guys want to disagree i don't know i really could not get past the fact that there's another team in the country that is maybe better than you or maybe just as good as you. And that's Georgia. Um, You know, I think all roads kind of led back to Georgia for me when I was making this list, because I think when you talk about college football right now, I think 
pretty much everybody would tell you that Ohio State and Georgia are the number one and number two teams in the country, or at least they think they're the best two teams in the country as you head into 2024. And I don't think there's a crazy argument that either team's better than one, you know, either team's better than the other. So I, I just, I looked at this and went, Ohio State, I think, is more talented than pretty much everybody they're going to play, maybe with the exception of Georgia. And if you're talking about winning a national championship, not not just, oh, we, we made a run in the playoff and, you know, we won a game or two and, you know, not just whatever. You want to win a national championship, you're probably going to have to go through the Georgia Bulldogs. And I, no matter how I map this list out in my head, the, the offensive line, uh, coaching, um, you know, just kind of every the schedule, everything you could think of. I just came back to the fact that you're probably going to have to run through Georgia at some point. So I had Georgia number four, just because I think they are that good. I think they're they're I mean, they are returning a lot from the 2023 season. And if you want to win a national championship, you're going to have to beat the best, and they might be the best, or they at the very least they are talent equatable to you are. So uh, Georgia for me. So Nathan, I did have some team-oriented things when I was going through this. I didn't have Georgia on my list at all, and that's because you're not guaranteed to play them. I get it. You might have to go through them, but that's all bracket essential. And what if Georgia falls and slips and falls at some point before you would get them on the list? I didn't necessarily have Georgia on my list. Did you? Uh, I, I thought about it. They wouldn't have been in my top three, but I get where Andrew's coming from because, again, Right now, it seems like there are two teams that are separating here in Georgia and Ohio State in terms of how people are looking at the season. Now, we're just took, just looking at rosters and like pure talent. There's two that seem to be at the top of the list. There's a third team that I'm going to talk about here in a minute when it's my turn again. But I definitely see where Andrew's coming from because when you look back at 2019, and I know Ohio State didn't end up beating Clemson in that semifinal, but as great as that Ohio State team was in so many ways, elite defense, Chase Young, all those guys, J.K. Dobbins, Justin Fields, just a just great team, balanced both sides of the ball. They would have had their shot against LSU, but LSU seemed like the true super team that year. Ohio State seemed like the really good team that wasn't at super team level. And if that happens again, if you're just second best, if you're second great, you're still not winning the national championship if you run into the great. So this is actually the argument, though, where the 12-team playoff comes into play for me a little bit. Because in a four-team playoff scenario, a four-team, yeah, four-team playoff scenario, this is the schedule Georgia has this year. They open against Clemson and Atlanta. They have SEC road games at Kentucky, Alabama, Texas, and Ole Miss. Now, as great as we think Georgia is, that's a tough schedule to run and only take one loss, let alone two. And then you got to play an SEC championship game, potentially against one of those other really strong teams. So this is where the 12-team playoff could hurt someone like Ohio State, and I don't think it's necessarily in a way that's better for the sport. So I think it's better for the sport that a team that's as great as Georgia and plays that tough of a schedule still gets to be in the conversation at the end of the season without question. But like Ohio State's schedule, when you look at it, okay, yeah, they got to go on the road at Oregon. Like Penn State and Michigan are kind of hanging around as like top 15-ish teams in people's estimation, but 
they're not like blowing the doors off of, of people right now. They both got some questions that they've got to answer, obviously, to, to say that they're at like an elite level. Whereas with what Texas has, what Ole Miss is putting together, you know, Alabama, obviously they've just had a lot of turnover and they're in a, but they, they started from a place of, of great talent. Like I, I would rather have Ohio state schedule than Georgia's is all I'm saying. So in the past, this you could be Ohio State and be in a more advantageous situation as far as getting one of those top four spots, and you're almost sort of eliminating. Kind of what happened last year to Ohio State. I would still say Ohio State at the end of the year is better than Texas, is better than Alabama, is better than Washington. I would say in terms of talent and actually what they accomplished over the course of a year and what they put on the field and performance, but they don't get to be in the playoff picture. Now all those teams are going to get to be in the playoff picture. So I think that's maybe where the 12 team argument comes into play as to why it makes Ohio state worse. Not just because it makes their road. They have to win one more game and it'll be against a good team, but nobody gets a, a great team who stumbles and you could you can argue whether again, losing by six on the road against the eventual national champion is a true stumble compared to some of the other losses people took last year, but that's not going to knock anybody out anymore. The, the great teams it's going to help Ohio state. There's several years where they were that great team or very good team that had a stumble and didn't get to go to the playoff. But now all those teams are going to be in the mix still. First and foremost, <laughs> I love how Georgia and Clemson essentially scheduled a neutral neutral. <laughs> Cause that game in Georgia and the one they played in 2021 and week one was just in like Charlotte, North Carolina. So they didn't schedule a home and home, but they scheduled a neutral neutral in the States that they play. Well, comes in the South Carolina, but it's like, why not just play those games on your campuses? But okay. I mean, for exposure, what, I, I mean, for, you know, getting to play in these big venues. I get it. Then make a bowl game. <laughs> They're going to make a bowl, which Bad. is more of a bowl. That's, I know, but still, just you know, keep them on the campuses, yep. man. Home and homes, yep. man. home and homes. I so um, I'll I'll save my comments then because I think Nathan, you're getting ready to head down the road. I was going to head down anyway, so go ahead, Nathan. With what what your next selection is? Going well, to be. so the the one that I put was that it turns out that Oregon is the Big Ten's super team and not Ohio State. That as much as we're talking about Ohio state and all the additions that they've made, you know, Oregon was right there also on the cusp of a playoff berth last year, right in the mix. Now they lost some important people, obviously, but you know, you lose Bo Nix, but you bring on Dylan Gabriel, you lose uh, three starters in the secondary. You add um, uh, Muhammad from Washington. You add a guy from Kansas state, uh, Kobe Savage. Um, and you've got Dan Lanning who is, you know, proving himself, I think to be a pretty talented coach. And now, though, things are going to be tougher for them. Um, again, let's go back to the schedule. Oregon plays at Michigan, and they have to play Ohio State and Washington. They get them both at home. But that's, again, a tougher schedule, I would argue, than what Ohio State will have to run this year. And Oregon's going to be doing all this cross-country travel. We don't know yet what effect that's going to have on a team. And it's not like they're flying back and forth every single week. But there's going to be enough of it mixed in that maybe it has an impact. I don't know. But it's just on my mind that Ohio State has to play at Oregon. So if Oregon wins that game, you're already one game up on Ohio State. If you face them again in the Big Ten Championship game and Ohio State still can't beat them, well, now Ohio State's the team with two losses, and maybe they are going on the road in the first round, even though they're they're right there with – it's kind of what happened with Oregon and Washington this past year. What if this year Ohio State is Oregon to last year's Washington? 
to Oregon. <laughs> and, and, and Oregon is just like that is just a little bit better and just finds a way to win those two games and puts Ohio State then on the outside looking in, still in the playoff, I think almost assuredly, as long as they don't take like a third loss along the way somehow. Still still in the playoff, but with that tougher road that Andrew was talking about, where now you got to go on the road in the first round, and now you're playing an even higher seed in the second round um, and not in advantage. You know, so it, uh, I just, that is on the radar for me that we might not be wrong about Ohio State necessarily, but that Oregon just kind of reloads on the fly and goes right back at it to essentially the level they were at last year. I said Oregon is a juggernaut, and that's a problem because they're on Ohio State's regular season schedule. And even if they weren't on their regular season schedule, if they're a juggernaut and Ohio State's one of the best teams in the Big Ten, you're going to play them in Indianapolis. There's, Oregon's schedule is actually pretty favorable in terms of the travel because I was wondering that which of these West Coast teams would get put in a situation just because of how things worked out. They'd have to come east two weeks in a row. They never have to do that because the, they're either it, – it's, it's either they're kind of like – Road game, home game, road game, home game, road game, bye week, home game. So it kind of works out that way because I have I, that's something to keep an eye on though with USC, UCLA, Washington, and Oregon. If that ever happens, what they look like if they have to play back to back weeks on the road and both of them are in the East is how do they look in that second game and are they kind of worn down because of all that travel and that attrition kind of pays off there. But I I I had Oregon. On my list, they didn't make my top three, but it was like number four because of that that reason. It's what if Dan Lanning is awesome, and what if Oregon is awesome, and yes, Michigan just maybe went away, but you just replaced that with Oregon, who does kind of recruit not at your level, Ohio State, but they're a level right under you and could potentially recruit at your level and could potentially, you know, if USC is going to fall off a cliff here, maybe those California kids start going to play for Dan Lanning, but in twenty twenty four. They reloaded in a way, and especially with the way last year ended, where they're going to be look, coming into the Big Ten looking to punch people in the mouth, and they get the biggest bully off rip in week six. And that's it's going to be an interesting game right there at the half point mark to see where Ohio State is and where Oregon is, really, and whether both of these teams are necessarily national title contenders because we think their rosters are, but it'll be interesting to see that play out. Andrew, I know you've been pro Dan Landing on this pod since you got here. So I'm sure that you thought about Oregon potentially being. Yeah, on they your were list. they were right behind Georgia for me. Um, and to to further Nathan's point about because I think Georgia's better. Um, but to further Nathan's point about the you know the um uh, the playing them twice, you might beat them. You know, forget oh we can't beat them. They're just a little bit better than us. And it's basically your Oregon to last year's Washington, where Oregon was a really good team that just couldn't beat Washington. And forget that Ohio state could go to Eugene and beat Oregon. And then all of a sudden you beat Oregon and run the table. I mean, that just propels you the rest of the season. You run the table, you're 12 and Oh, you're the number one team in the country or number two team in the country headed into the, you know, to the final week. And then you got to play Oregon again in Indianapolis and you lose. Now all of a sudden you go from the bye week to you know the the bye week is the two seed to now you're the six seed and you're hosting the 11 and what if the 11 ends up being like no slouch you know an sec team like an Ole miss or an lsu or a big 10 team like a penn state should ohio state win those games yeah 
Is it at home? Yeah. Is it beneficial to drag a Southern team up to the North Pole in the winter to play in, you know, on a Friday night in Ohio? Yeah, probably. But you still got to play the game. It's not just one of those things that you can just say, oh, well, they're better and blah, blah, blah. It's not really going to have any impact. You still have to beat a really good team in a winner-take-all setting. And that's a problem. So Oregon just prevent presents all of these problems because, yeah, you have to go to play them on the road. And that can put you behind them, obviously. It can put you behind them by a game. And then, obviously, they'll have the tiebreaker. And then you have to start to worry about, okay, like, what happens if, like, Penn State's good, and then all of a sudden that Penn State game in Happy Valley is a play-in game for the Big Ten Championship or something like that, um, as Steven smirks. Um, but what, like, what happens? Uh, yeah, I understand. Penn State, but like, what what it's, happens if one of these other teams just turns out to be really good, and then all of a sudden you have you have lost your room for error if you lose that Oregon game in in uh, the early part of the year? So. Yeah, the the regular season game is going to matter, but I also circle back to the fact that you you might have to beat them twice, and that's going to be really difficult because if you don't beat them twice, you might be going on forget you're probably not going on the road per se because you're probably still a top eight team, but playing in that first round is not going to be something you want to do because imagine that scenario, right? I've been thinking about this a lot. Imagine that scenario for a team like Ohio State. You do so great in the regular season. If you, you get to the, the Big Ten championship game or whatever at 12 and 0, and you had this grueling year, and you're like, all right, we beat Oregon, a team we already beat, and then we, we get some time. We don't have to play a game until after Christmas. And then you lose to Oregon in a really competitive, physical, exhausting game. And 10, 11, 12 days later, you got to come turn around and play a team who has been resting for two or three weeks. And I understand you get kind of like about like a, you get like, Wait, like what, 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 what so scenario if, you, if, is if Ohio state is the number two seed through they run the table, you're 12 and Oh, right. You, you lose to okay. Oregon in the big 10 championship game. And then you have to host a, a first uh-huh. round game and you play a team like a Penn state who hasn't played since November. And they've been off for three weeks. And now Ohio state has, 10 days of rest or something like that, whatever it is, um, 12 days of rest, whatever it is. And you have to go play a team like that. That can mentally wear on you. If you're like right there for the taking and now you have to go play another team in a situation that you didn't think you might have to be playing in. I, I just think that that might be a really tough situation for a team to navigate, not just Ohio state, but for anyone. So, uh, I want to keep my eye out for that. Um, so the, yeah, Oregon was, was definitely on my list. I, I think that they might be really good. And I just think that the way that the schedule presents itself, they're going to give you some problems. I'm, I don't know if they would be playing Penn State in that situation. I honestly think that depending on how this works, I think Oregon and Ohio State are two of the three best teams in the country. And the loser of that game, if they both – it was probably – assuming that that might be the rematch of the Big Ten championship game, I think that if they split those games, somebody wins the regular season game and then somebody wins the Big Ten championship game, then the winner of that game might end up being the one seed and the loser of that game might end up being like the five seed. So you'd be playing you know, a 12 seed. I, I don't, I don't that's know. Fair. If, that, that, that's fair. I, I don't believe in it. I don't know if they're going to be 12 seed bad. So this brings me into mind. And it's you guys, I, there's the Oregon part because I, I split these up because Oregon's in their conference and you have to play them. You have to, period. Whether it's to win the Big Ten or during the regular season, you're going to potentially have to play them, even if they weren't on your schedule. 
I went with, and it, it goes back to you brought up the LSU point, Nathan. I said the random super team, because that's what LSU was in 2019. Nobody came into that season expecting LSU to do that. The year before that, Joe Burrow threw like 21 touchdown pass. He, he had a Kyle McCord year the year before that. And no, in fact, I think Kyle, Kyle, Kyle McCord's 2023 season was better than Joe Burrow's 2018 season. Without question, I would take 2023 Kyle McCord over 2018 Joe Burrow. And then Georgia kind of shot up in 2021. They had been good, but they had kept hitting the ceiling that was Alabama. And even then, they lost Alabama that year. But they had ended up having this super defense. The only super team that we saw coming was Bama in 2020. And I mean, we kind of labeled it angry Bama that year. All these other super teams over the last four or five years here have just kind of come out of nowhere. And so who's the team we're not thinking about right now? And maybe because we've seen so many of them, we're thinking about it a little bit more and we're preparing ourselves a little bit for it. I've, I've said Ole Miss a couple times on this pod. It seems like Ole Miss is cashing in all its chips this year because their schedule is god-awful, and they've gone into the transfer portal and added some additions. Now, they also lost one in Quinshawn Judkins to Ohio State. That was a pretty valuable piece for Ole Miss, but they've added a few quality pieces everywhere else, and their quarterback's pretty good as well. So I look at Ole Miss. I look at maybe some other teams who are further down the list here. Maybe Kalen DeBoer just picks up where Alabama left off, and they're they're just good. All of a, he just took chop his Washington shot, brought it to Tuscaloosa, missed it with some of the talent that didn't leave, and Alabama is still one of the eight best teams in college football. Maybe Utah jumps up because some of the better teams in the Pac-12 have left that conference now, so it's definitely Utah's conference now. Maybe Brian Kelly finally gets it to hit at LSU coming off a year where he just had a Heisman Trophy quarterback and they run that back and they're and they're five ten percent better but I, I'm looking I, I didn't include Georgia because we can already see that coming we know they're one of the best teams in college football I don't need to I'm not gonna be caught off guard if Georgia's undefeated heading into the college football playoff I also won't be shocked if they lose because their schedule is kind of difficult but that, that doesn't shock me if Oregon's good it's not going to shock me if they're so good that Ohio State, we get to the end of next year and Ohio State's still the second best team in the Big Ten. That's an interesting conversation, but them just being good doesn't shock me. Ole Miss turning into a national championship caliber team would be kind of off the radar when you look at the seasons that have built up to this. So I included the LSU, the Georgia of the super team nobody saw coming. And all of a sudden, Ohio State's a really good football team, but they're not the super team that came out of nowhere. And they didn't, and because we don't see it coming, that super team typically doesn't put a stamp on things until like week four when they played somebody good, which is what LSU did when they played Texas. That was the first moment where it's like, okay, they might be cooking with something here. And then they beat Bama and then it was off and running after that. So Nathan, I included that. The super team nobody sees coming. Did you consider that at all? Um, yeah, it, it's sort of, I didn't want to like duplicate myself too much on the, on the team stuff. It, it, it's a cousin of some of the other things we've been talking about, but as far as like picking who that team might be in 2019, LSU was the number six team in the preseason AP top 25. So it's not like they were off the radar completely. It just was like, Oh, they could be pretty good or like one of the better teams. And then they, it turns out like, no, like this is one of the best teams that anybody's ever put together. Well, Right now, I was looking at ESPN's early preseason top 25, but I think you could find it. It'd be about the same thing. Right now, the number six team is Ole Miss. And Ole Miss won 11 games last year, and I know they just lost Quinchon Judkins, but they just added a bunch in the transfer portal too, from uh, Walter Nolan to uh, um, 
couple of starters from Washington uh, on the offensive line. Um, they get Oklahoma and Georgia at home, and those are their two toughest games. And there's obviously a bunch of talent here. So that's kind of the team that I have my eye on a little bit to be like, and and we'll know when they play Georgia, obviously. They do, like I said, they do get them at home. But like, is that a team that is going to make that jump and be at some elite level? Even in, even if they would still have to take a jump, I think, to be considered at the Georgia Ohio State potential level. But they're they're not that far. It's not far fetched to think they could do that. And then if if they make that jump, do they make some jump that it's like, oh no, like there's just wall to wall talent here that is is better. And Lane Kiffin puts it all together in a way he never has previously in his career. I think there's a non-zero chance of that happening. I'm not saying it's a strong chance, but it's something that you just have to kind of keep your eye on. That's the team that I have out there that, yes, it would be it's it, it would be unexpected in that right now they're only in like that 5-6 range on most of these top 25s, and Ohio State and Georgia is who everybody's talking about. But if you go back to 2019, like Clemson was a preseason number one, Alabama was a preseason number two, and those were kind of the two teams that everybody thought, well, it'll just be those two teams again. Here we go. And then LSU just like rises like a phoenix that year. And Ohio State was only fifth, <clears throat> excuse me, in the preseason top 25. But there's some extenuating circumstances there with the changeover to Ryan Day. How bad the defense had been year before and how like almost like historically bad it had been. And then the, the 180 that it made. So Ohio State was also a little bit off the radar that year in terms of like being like a, a potential like world beater. And it almost got there, but not quite. Okay, so let's take a quick break here, and then we'll get into what our last three here are on Buckeye Talk. Andrew, you're back up on the clock here. This is Buckeye Talk. Steve means Andrew Gillis, Nathan Baird, and we're talking the biggest threats to Ohio State's chances to winning a national championship in 2024, and those threats can be self-inflicted things. They can be things that they're completely out of their control, and our list is a little bit of both of those things so far. Andrew, you're up with – Thing number seven on our total list, thing number three on your list. What yeah, is your thing? Um, this was kind of middle of the pack on my list. Uh, it was that the Chip Kelly, Ryan Day marriage doesn't go great. Um, I think that that I, you have to kind of put that on a list like this, because for as much as we talk about this being necessary and this being the way of the world in college football, like I, I know Steven kind of pushed back on this, you know, notion for a couple of different reasons, but you know, it is still true that I think the last play caller to win a national championship was Jimbo Fisher at Florida state in 2013. And yeah, there are mitigating circumstances for that. Yeah. There's other contexts for that, but I, I think it, it doesn't correlate directly, but I do think it does kind of show that the better programs have coaches that delegate and can do that. So for as much as we say that this is good, because I think it is good, and I think Nathan and Steven also believe that it is good, that, that Ryan Day and Ohio State has done this. And for as much as we look at Chip Kelly and think it's going to work, and I think it's going to work, and I think you guys probably think, at least to some modicum of success, it's going to work. It still has to work. You still got to see it happen. And it it is still a change. The guy who gave up play calling said in a press conference like a week ago, hey, I didn't really want to do this, but I had to. In like, to me, that 
doesn't scream red flag or red, you know, siren or doesn't scream any kind of issues are on the horizon. But it definitely made me think like, what happens if they do lose at Oregon and the play calling is still suspect? Because now we talked about play calling being suspect at, for example, Notre Dame, where Steven looked at me in, uh, I think it was like the second quarter of that game. And it was like the fourth down. They ran it on third down. They didn't get it. And Steven looks at me and he goes, they're going to run a play action pass here and they're not going to get it. And that was exactly what happened. And in the fourth quarter, which you watched tape. I watched tape. You know ball. You know, I you watched also tape. watched Ohio State for like four years. <laughs> you just watched how they operate. Um, and then I think we all kind of looked at each other with our mouths wide open and our jaws on the floor when like fourth and half a yard in the red zone against Notre Dame with like four minutes left, you run a jet sweep to a Mecca and instead of, you know, you run horizontal instead of vertical. And like, if that happens, like if those situations happen, Ryan day can now point the finger elsewhere and point the finger at someone else. And I'm curious what happens if that's the case. And does the run game meld? Well, does chip Kelly use the weapons as he should is will Howard successful in chip Kelly's offense. And I understand it is still Ryan day's offense, but chip Kelly is going to be the one running things. And that marriage is still got to work. So for as much as we say conceptually, it's great. And everything that are surrounding Ohio state's offense, that this needed to happen. It's still got to work. It's still got to happen. We still got to see it play out in front of our eyes and watch it work. You need to have proof of concept here. Go ahead, Nathan. Yeah, this was on my fringe list of of possibilities. I'm not that worried about the play calling element of it, that like Chip Kelly would not call the right plays. And I think he has enough creativity and risk taking in his background that I'm not expected to come in and be the wild west, but that maybe he'll take some chances or just bring a different perspective to some of these situations that Ryan day didn't, but I still have it on my list because I think the more important thing is that Ryan day allows chip Kelly to be what he's hired him to be. And that allows him to be what he now needs to be. As I said before, they haven't named anybody yet on special teams as like who's coordinating special teams. Ryan Day said that that may be something that he takes a bigger ownership of uh, this coming season because mm-hmm. of the way this staff is made up. If he got the right offensive coordinator in place, well, I think Chip Kelly qualifies as the right offensive coordinator in place to allow him to, to do things like that, to be able to spread out a little bit more. I think more so than pure play calling, because there's a difference between play calling and decision making. They're tied together in crucial moments, but general play calling, I would argue is not necessarily a problem for Ohio state. Yeah. I mean, sometimes they run a play and you're like, why did they do that? Whatever it, watch every team that'll happen. I was watching the super bowl and, and the chiefs and 49ers both, I thought were guilty of why are you running the fourth down play on? Why are you running the, yeah. Why are you running the fourth down play on? Why not run the fourth down play on third down and just get the first down rather mm-hmm. than put your back against the wall on fourth down. You ran the super predictable play on third down and it got you nothing. That happened like multiple times in the super bowl. I thought, and that's something that coaches at every level are guilty of sometimes. And maybe Chip Kelly helps weed out some of that. I just think it's more about letting and Ryan day is still going to be on that headset. Like, believe you me, that offensive headset 
will he will be tuned into that consistently. And when controversial calls happen, big calls happen, at the end of the day, it's still Ryan Day that's going to have veto power on those. So he can try to throw somebody under the bus if he wants, but he's still an offensive head coach who is going to keep some ownership of being involved in the offense. And he can only, if you throw somebody under the bus, they'll have a grasp of his wrist as they're rolling under it because he has still made it clear uh, that he's going to still have a hand in the offense. So it's not so much about the play calling to me. It's about the decision-making. It's about because he doesn't have to think about play calling, he can synthesize things more around the decisions that have to be made and then let somebody else come up with the best play call for that situation. It helps him just give him a little bit more freedom to think through you know, how you're going to handle that field goal at the end of the first half against Michigan, how you're going to handle the earlier fourth down situation against Michigan early in the game where they could have gone for it instead of punting. Like those sorts of things I think is where Chip Kelly is going to help Ryan day the most. It's going to help him take some other things off his plate. So Ryan day can think ahead to those situations in game, probably better than he can. when he's having to come up with the first and second down play. Like right now, if you let Chip Kelly come up with the first and second down play, you can start imagining the scenarios that are going to unfold later in that drive and have still have input into what happens there. And it may be a better clarity than the person who's just calling the play. I, some of this is all theory, and we'll see how it plays out. I just feel like that's the most important thing, the organizational structure here, that Chip Kelly gets to be the leader of the offense, the, not just the play caller, but gets to take the lead and building the game plan each week. And it just allows Ryan day to go give more oversight to everywhere else. He needs to give it in that program. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. And that was on my list. Just Ryan day needs to get out of his own way because it's, I think the, it's going to happen this spring where he's inching back towards the offense and you know just doing what he knows and can he have the – it's not about, for me, what happens on Saturday because I don't have any reason to think Chip Kelly won't call a good game, especially since that's all he has to worry about. It's not that he has to worry about doing head coaching things. It's just call a good game on Saturday. It's more the dynamics on Sunday through Friday. And when they're in those offensive meetings, can Ryan Day take the step back? When he has that urge to want to grab the pointer and have a – it's like, no, can you – Sit back in the chair and let Chip Kelly do the job he, he you hired him to do. Does it create moments like the Michigan game where you get a better result? Because to your point, Nathan, Ryan Day can look at it more from a big picture standpoint and not have to be worried about every single individual play call because he's not calling the plays anymore. That That's the, the way I looked at it because that is going to matter. That is going to be an interesting thing to watch develop because this is new for Ryan Day. It's been a long time since he hasn't been a play caller and he's never been a head coach without being a play caller. So it's, it is something to a conversation we had during a pod earlier in the week where I asked the question that it was based off of a texter question, Texas one, four, three, five, oh, three, three, one, five. But they asked about the idea of could this get botched just because by coaching and that's what happened in 2015. I think that's what I look at is Brian day just going to get in his own way. And that's what results in the coaching mistakes that end up costing him a game. Nathan, what was the last thing on your list? Uh, yeah, I mean, we've, we've surpassed the things that I thought were the, the, the primary things 
Uh, one that I threw on here, and and obviously as you get farther down the list, they seem less and less likely. Like right now, we are kind of, I wouldn't say we're writing Michigan off, but we're definitely looking at them as a, uh, having to take a step back. But like, what if they don't? What if the, the DNA is still there? Yes, they've lost a lot of talent, but either what if they don't take that step back or what if they just have the bugaboo that Ohio State can't overcome and they come into Ohio Stadium and somehow win that game. And if Ohio State already took a loss at Oregon, now you're talking about going to the playoffs with two losses. Maybe you're not hosting a game. Again, if we're talking about things that complicate a national championship run, then not beating Michigan this year will absolutely complicate a national championship run. It might mean you don't win the Big Ten. It might mean that, like I just said, you have to go on the road to start the playoffs, and who knows where that's sending you. You know, the, the idea of like being like the the nine seed and having to go play at eight seed uh, Texas or something is is probably not super uh, enticing to a state. So, and then you got to turn around and play the one after that, right? I mean. You're, it's so it's it's uh not not ideal. So I don't think this is likely. I think Michigan is probably going to have to take a step back just from the the, the sheer amount of talent that they're losing. But talent remains. You saw this team respond to Shromore last season when he had to take over for Jim Harbaugh and under those suspensions. I imagine that there's something to that, and maybe he can rally these guys. They've got to figure out uh what they're doing at quarterback uh, primarily, but, but other places, but they got Donovan Edwards. They've got some other guys back that are talented. Uh, I, I think there's still a chance that this is not a team that while it takes a step back from elite status, I don't think it plummets to a point where you can take them for granted. And that's obviously certainly the case for Ohio state, which can't ever take them for granted, but it's really when they're riding a three game losing streak in the game. I thought about Michigan. I spliced this because um, I used Michigan to make a different point than what you just made. But I think that's a valuable point is, is what if Michigan doesn't take the full dive off the edge that maybe it's easy to think they're doing right now because we're so close to it and, and the season hasn't started yet. I looked at it more from the Ohio State perspective of rivalries are emotional and there's a significant part of it that is mental that is larger than in normal situations. And sometimes you just got to get over the hump and Michigan knew that. And it's why it was so emotional when they won in 2021. Cause look where it took them just beating Ohio state. Finally having a team good enough to beat Ohio state and actually doing it, getting over that. Cause they had been close before 2016. They had gotten close 2018. They were the favorite going into that game, but they finally got over the hump in 2021. And two years later, they won a national championship with Ohio state. I am worried about just the mental of getting over that hump against that team who has just had your number for the last three years, especially coming off of last year's where all the extra stuff that was around the game probably made it sting a little bit more than the first two did. And I know the first two stung, but also to bring in another element of this in 2017, that Penn State game was emotional, beating Penn State. Because they had just lost to Penn State the year before that at, at Penn State, obviously. And that was in 2017. That's the best game JT Perry probably ever played as Ohio State's quarterback. He had those 17 straight uh, completions to, in that comeback win. Emotional win. 
emotional win in the greatest performance JT Barrett ever had. Anybody remember what happened seven days after that? <laughs> he had literally the worst game. <laughs> it was the those 14 days were the JT Barrett experience. You went from the greatest you've ever seen him to the worst he's ever been against Iowa. Because sometimes that's when teams catch you. Is when that at least that's been Ohio State's story with some of these upsets. You just had a big emotional win, and that took a lot out of you. And then the next week you can't repeat that. So I am wondering with Michigan whether it's having to rematch against Michigan the following week, because to your point, Nathan, Michigan doesn't fall off a cliff. Maybe they're just good again. Or maybe you're playing Oregon the next week. Or maybe, I guess, Penn State, man. Or Wisconsin or Washington or whoever else. It's just, let's say they beat Michigan this year, which I think right now we're all lean towards Ohio State winning that game, and that can continue to evolve. But it's so emotional. It takes such a toll on this group who literally had an entire recruiting class outside of two people choose to come back because they kept losing that game. At least that's how they're going to say publicly, losing to Michigan, not winning the Big Ten. This, this That game has so much to what, what to do with why Jack Sawyer and J.C. Tuomaloa and Trayvon Henderson and Denzel Burke and all those guys are back. That game, I mean, Caleb Downs and Seth McLaughlin, their last game was against Michigan this year. They lost that game too. So there's a million reasons why that game is going to matter regardless of how good Michigan is. And what if it just takes so much out of them that they're never able to get back to that in the games that follow that and whoever they play in a Big Ten championship game or whoever they play in the college football playoff just takes advantage of that and they end up winning that game, Andrew. What do you just think of that idea of that Michigan game just has so much on it that can you find a way to, you know, Conjure that up again seven days later when it might take so much out of you, especially if you well, win that game. Well, first off, I'm going to sue you for copyright infringement because you pretty much stole everything that I wanted to say. Um, I had Georgia on the list, and they were the Georgia Bulldogs, the football team. And I had Oregon on the list, and it was Oregon, the football team. Might be really good, and, and I did have part of the schedule. I didn't have Michigan on the list. When I wrote my list down, I had the Michigan game on my list. Because I need you to imagine this scene right now. It is November 30th. It's a chilly, cloudy day in Columbus. And it's 3.45 p.m. And Ohio State wins 34 to 20. And the fans storm the field. And players are celebrating. And the Buckeyes are 12 and 0. Tell me at that moment that Ohio State players at, at that time wouldn't feel like they could touch God and that they could do anything in the world. You get by Michigan with this group. Yeah. I, I think that that matters maybe more than like more than anything else, because Michigan is a, like Michigan is a team. I think I understand, you know, oh, they maybe they're, you know, maybe they won't take a step back or a big step back. They're going to take a step back. I think pretty clearly, um, you know, I, they what do they have at the combine like 18 guys uh, they're not replicating that in 2025 and like the talent in Ann Arbor is going to go down and I understand like what if Michigan is just a nine-win team that is an offensive and defensive line driven program and that is just your bugaboo if you're Ohio State to Nathan Stevens point what if that is the men- what if that is just the hurdle that you can't get over like you gotta do it at some point and I just think that getting by Michigan would give you so much confidence 
and so much just so much positivity heading into the Big Ten championship game. I get the idea of, you know, oh, hey, look, you could win this emotional game and then have a letdown. Um, I, I, maybe, like, maybe that's a possibility, but you like you, you got to do it. I mean, you're going to have to beat them. You're going to have to do it eventually. Um, and the the thing with Ohio State is the the Michigan game. I think just for everything that it means, for everything that it stands for, for everything that people want it to be. I think that that matters more. Like that's a bigger obstacle than Michigan, the Wolverines, right? Like I think that the Michigan football team might not be the biggest hindrance. Like you've got to get over the emotion of that. Like if Steven was bringing up all these guys coming back to play that game and to play this particular moment, well, you can't get caught up in the moment. You know, you got to play with emotion, but can't let your emotions play with you. And if you show up in that Michigan game and just start trying to knock everybody's head off and you're like the you're just losing your head and losing your cool, then you're going to lose. And then you got a whole other set of problems. And I just I think about what a loss would do to this team and what a win would do to this team. And they're two remarkably different ends of the spectrum. And. Like an Ohio State, like a loss to Michigan doesn't ruin your season like it did in 23 or 21 and almost was 22. I just getting by that hurdle, you're going to have to do it. The Capitals eventually beat the Pittsburgh Penguins. Peyton Manning eventually beat Tom Brady. And I understand that Ohio State's had a long run of success, but the guys on the team haven't. The guys on the team that are playing in that game will have not beaten Michigan, will have not had that level, will have not experienced that level of success. So yeah, I, I, I just I look at this game as is it just it matters way more off the field than it does on the field. And it matters way more between the ears than I think anything else. Nathan, what do you think of that idea? The just the the emotions of that game potentially being Ohio State's downfall, whether in that game or after that game. I don't think winning that game, yeah, they're going to have to like regroup emotionally for whatever game comes after that, especially if it's a Big Ten championship game a week later. But I don't think a, a win in that game somehow, um, you know, cripples them emotionally. Uh, I, I think, if anything, they should probably feel a surge off of that. I do think that a loss in that game, even if they then still make the playoff, is what's potentially emotionally crippling to where you're going to have a different, because right now they're favored to win that game by a touchdown, essentially in the early line. I think if this season plays out the way that most people think the season is going to play out, that line's going to grow, especially because it's a home game for Ohio state. If you lose a fourth straight, if you lose at home again to a team that you're favored by, by that much on paper, who it looks like you are clearly the more talented team, man. Um, yeah, even if you're going into the playoff at that point, that might be what's tough to come back from. So I, I don't really have a concern that just the game in of itself, um, because plenty of Ohio State teams, it's it's always been a huge game. It's always been an emotional game. There's you know, we can go back through history to years where you could argue, and especially going forward, that it was even more significant then than it's going to be going forward. But 
teams found a way to win that game and then still move on and win beyond that. Uh, That's not what I think would be the obstacle. If you win, it's probably a thing that where you, you can go into the playoff with a, a certain level of not just confidence, but even like relief. Like you got that monkey off your back. Now, now who's going to stop us? Like we've beaten, we've beaten all the best teams that we've played so far. And we've beaten like the mental thing that we couldn't beat before. Now here's, you know, we, we, we can go in with a different level of confidence if you're Ohio state, but if you lose that game, I think there's a different level of doubt. There's going to be all sorts of just ugliness around the program at that point that, well, now you have to win a national championship to save your coach's job. Right. And can you even can you even save your coach's job if you win a national championship if they can't beat Michigan four years in a row? Like that's what's going to be on the table. So, and it, that's that's not the. I mean, I guess teams could rise to the occasion from that, have their back against the wall, and feel like, uh, well, now we got nothing to lose. Let's just go for it. And that has worked out if you have enough talent. But uh, I think the the former scenario is a much healthier way to go into it. You you win that game you get a boost of momentum and confidence and everything else. And that can carry you farther towards a national championship. I'll tell you what, man, <laughs> firing your head coach. Cause he lost a four straight game to Michigan, but he also played in the national championship is a hell of a way to tell everybody what you emphasize more. I don't think it's going to play out that way, but it's just, I mean, Hey, it's the biggest rivalry in sports. Anything is up for grabs. I guess my last thing on this list, since I'm going last was just, I don't know. One of these other Big Ten teams who who plays them at home just catches them off guard one week, you know. And that's to, to your point, Nathan. As you get lower and lower on this risk, there are less and less likely things to happen in this situation. But the Penn State game is at Penn State this year, and you know Penn State's got a pretty great home field advantage, and that's I think one of the best in the Big Ten, at least from the places I've been so far. So maybe that, especially if that ends up being a night game, then that gets interesting in that situation. But I don't. Like I said, I don't have that much faith in Penn State as being, but that's the last thing that was on my list. This was a long pod, but mainly because we started with some new stuff that happened on Thursday. But I, a pretty interesting list of things that both could be in Ohio State's control and out of their control in terms of things that could happen that could prevent this team who is expected to compete for a national championship to not win a national championship. Get the text 614-350-3315. All news, all analysis to your phone first. Two-week free trial, three ninety nine. after that. For Nathan Baird, for Andrew Gillis, I'm Stephen Means, and that was Buckeye Talk. <laughs>